0: by kind of Christian culture. And so we've lost sight of how, how huge this was and how much controversy surrounded it, how, how, um, how astonishing, how, um, overwhelming the idea of God becoming a man was for, you know, first century believers. And for us today, it should still be, but like for us, we've, we grew up with this idea, right? Like it's, I I read it was in our cream and butter on our oatmeal every morning. It was there. It got easy to be bored with it. Right? Like and I know some of you really got bored with oatmeal. Uh and and you know, it it it's just the truth of it. We lose sight of it. And we do Christmas every year and so you hear the same verses or, or like preached on and the same songs and you got to listen to those same songs while you're in, you know, Walmart trying to buy uh potatoes or whatever and you know, we wish you a Merry Christmas or, or White Christmas, or uh, 10 million other ones are playing and driving you nuts. And, and like, but understand, in the early church, this was a huge deal. Nobody liked this idea, or a lot of people didn't like this idea of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Um, and so, like, like, as we dive into it, um, understand my goal is to get you to, to think about this in a way that's a little different and to kind of digest it and soak in it, and to move from, you know, the the, the Casio keyboard to the Baby Grand. Everybody with me? Because, like, I, I swear to you, like, for the first time, um, I've been here nine years, and actually I've been a Christian for 20-some-odd, 30, no, I'm not even that old, uh, <laughs> 30 years. Um, I, I And I have never listened to the piano and thought about, like, that part of worship. And for the first time, like, singing here, I was like, oh, wow, that piano sounds amazing. Um, Probably not as good as the electric, but whatever, you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so let's try and appreciate the depth and the resonance of the gospel this morning. And actually, we're going to start out talking about St. Nicholas. We all know who St. Nick is, right? He's a jolly old man, likes reindeer. Uh, The historical St. Nicholas uh, was a uh, bishop, if I'm not mistaken, in the early church uh, around the 300s A.D. And he is most notorious for uh, during the Council of Nicaea in 325. This is when the Roman uh, the Roman uh, Empire adopted Christianity. And they met to discuss theology and to sort of nail everything down. And there was a guy named Arius who showed up. Arius, uh, Ariasm, Arianism. Arianism which is not the same thing as that other Arianism, don't mix them up, but Arius argued that Jesus was not fully God. And so, and like that he was created by God um, for the purpose of our salvation. And there was all of this debating, and St. Nicholas is known for standing up in the middle of this debate, walking across the room, and punching Arius in the face, and promptly getting arrested. I'm just saying, and actually it has led to one of my favorite memes, I came to give presents to kids and punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents, Um, which it it sounds ridiculous, but these guys were, I'll give you a second, (laughs) It, it sounds ridiculous, but these guys were passionate about this truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Right? Like that, that God became flesh and, and was crucified and died for our sins. Um, actually, I have another slide. You can barely tell what it is, and I have a slightly cleaner version. This is the Alexand- Alexandros Graffito. I am terrible with Latin, and I don't feel bad about that. But it is, um, it is one of the earliest inscriptions that acknowledges Christianity. And, uh, the phrase is, uh, Alexander worships his God and actually I have a relief of it. It is like the person who put this graffiti up and, and think about this when you do graffiti, you know, they might find this in several centuries and you'll be stuck, like remembered for it. But it they, they have this crucified man with the head of a donkey and, and it's making fun of this guy Alexandros because in the first century, actually for quite a while, um crucifixion was so offensive that it was sometimes considered a swear word. And the idea that God would be crucified was the sort of thing you mocked, right? Like, it is, I, we don't have a modern equivalent. Like, I, I really wish I could sort of point and say, hey, this, it is shameful. It is low. Um, and so, like, they mocked Christians for this idea that Jesus was crucified. He was, he was punished and he wasn't powerful enough to save himself. He was like a, like a common criminal. Um, and Christians were mocked for it. And so, like, understand, this is this is a huge deal, and and so as we dive into our texts, we're going to kind of tour a little bit. Um, but as we dive into our texts, we're going to work our way through a couple of these, um, these these understandings of who God was from the people of Israel, and then um, what happened when Christ was born and when they talked about him. And so, like like follow me here, and we'll kind of work our way through this. My main point: if you're going to fall asleep. Everybody with me? This is the one part to get. Um, the truth that God became man was viewed as a scandal, as insanity, as foolishness, and as like all sorts of other derisive things. They made fun of it. Um, but worse than any of that is our indifference to it. Um, like, like we talk about it and we sing about it and we do all this other stuff like, like, and then we forget. Um, When I have a bad day, I don't turn to Christ and I don't always, I do actually sometimes I'm getting better. um, We don't always turn to Christ and say, you knew what this was like. Help me get through it, right? You knew what it was to be rejected. You knew what it was to be mocked. You knew what it was to be in pain. You knew what it was to to be sick. You knew what it was to be alone, um, to, to be frustrated, to be disappointed. You knew these things. Help me get through it. Um, it, It's so easy to forget. Um, And we'll dive into the text here. Okay, so this is Exodus 19. Um, Exodus is the story of the Exodus, um, (laughs) where the people of Israel left Egypt, right? And they're crossing uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula, and they're in the desert, and they go to Mount Sinai. And there, God meets them, right? And they've been following a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. And there's all this, like, really, really great pyrotechnic, like, acknowledgement of God's presence, right? Everybody knows he's there. You can't miss him. And in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and very loud trumpet blast. Um, Jess, can you tighten the text up there? I'm sorry. It's off the edge of the page. Um Oh, I thought you were going to freeze it to do that. Uh, oh. Alright, just throw it back up and I'll, I'll muddle through it. Oh, I should hit play. Alright. Uh, <laughs> Uh, very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it like Fire Or in fire, the smoke billowed up from from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him, and the Lord descended. To the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Um, so one time uh, I was with Ross, kind of weird that this is the example I had. Uh, and we were coming down from hunting up on uh, up on the high line, and there was this huge pillar of smoke, black tarry smoke and it kind of i mean you remember us like it was huge it more like somebody 's house on fire is this a combine? Is it a feel as it turns out, it was a large pile of tires, a very large pile of tires that had been set on fire and probably still burning today i don 't know the tire fires go. Um, and But you could see it from a long way off. And it's actually what this text made me think of, is this idea of, like, you know, from a distance they saw God on Mount Sinai. It, it probably looked like a volcano erupting. Or or it looked like the end of the world happening right there in front of them. And the warning they received was, don't come up here. Which is okay, actually, because over and over again, at the foot of Mount Sinai, we see where the people say, hey, you go talk to God. He's scary. Right? You you go deal with him. I'm not going up there. Um, Because of our sin, because of our fallen nature, because of God's, like, awesomeness and his power and his might and his hugeness, there's separation, right? And, like, throughout the scriptures, when we see God revealed, there's all kinds of emphasis on his omnipotence and his omnipresence and and how he is uncontainable, how he is, is... Is all right? God is big and powerful and strong and holy, and to see Him is to be destroyed. Um, There's actually a line from one of the early church fathers where he argues that um, even the angels don't see God's face um, as it truly is, they only see a version of God that He allows them to see. And what he says is, when he wishes to show himself, he does not appear as he is, nor in his bare, is his bare essence revealed. For no one has seen God as he is. For at his condescension, not condescending like, you know, me talking to people. It's condescending as in God coming to our level. Um, even the cherubim, the angels trembled. His condescension and the mountains smoked. He condescended and the sea dried up. He condescended and the heavens were shaken. For had he not condescended, who could have borne it? Therefore he appears not as he is, but as that which the beholder is able to see. That is why he sometimes appears aged and sometimes young, sometimes in fire, sometimes in a breeze, sometimes in water, sometimes in weapons, not changing his essence but fashioning his appearance according to the different circumstances. This is John Cryosodom. I can never say his name. It is awful. This uh, was written, I would say, like two... Or 300 AD. So, this is a very early church writing. And the idea there, I know there's a lot of words, what he's saying is God is so much that we don't even know how to encounter him. Right? Like, he's so much we can't understand him. I was sitting at my, at my, at the desk in my little home study library that we're assembling. And um, I turned on the big light overhead and I was working this morning and there were flies buzzing around, and they were driving me nuts. If they had stayed still long enough for me to do my work and leave, they would have been fine, right? But because they insisted on continuing to move around, I went into the kitchen. I got the fly swatter. I stopped working for about a half an hour, and I killed both of them. I don't think those flies understood the significance of what I was doing. They didn't understand that Eric is trying to pray. Eric is trying to like like study. Eric is doing his devotions. Eric is just reviewing some stuff for the sermon last minute. Eric is doing these things. No, they were hey, there's a light, let's go look. Right? And that was their mistake. But I'm guessing they didn't understand me beyond the fly swatter. Right? If that. By the way, flies should not be out in December. That is not okay um <laughs> sorry it really bothered me um what we see of god is what we can understand and what we can accept this is not the case with jesus i'm going to say this very clearly up front do not hear me saying god shows himself to us as a man and that was why he did it that is not the case this is a different discussion right everybody with me um but the idea here is when we see god we can never even see all of him cuz he's so much He is so, like, powerful and big. He has to condescend. He has to come down to our level. Um, and the ancient Jews, they understood this idea that God is, God is enormous. God is powerful. God is mighty. And they would put attributes on him to try and describe him. But they all sort of knew, like, you know, he protects me under the shadow of his wings. God doesn't have wings, right? Like, he doesn't. And in fact, God doesn't have a body. And, like, we don't even say his name because if you say it wrong, you're in trouble. Right. And so for the ancient Jews like to look and say, God is anything. God is terrifying. God is powerful. God is enormous. We're going to go on to first Kings. This is uh, eight uh, chapter eight. Uh, the priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. So this is this room, and there are these giant statues of angels in the Holy of Holies, right? And there's a big set of doors or a curtain or whatever that covers that part, right? And so, like, they carry the Ark in, and they put it underneath, the like, this giant pair of statues, and it's underneath the wings of the statues— Um, the Ark of the Covenant, which is where they would pour the blood of the sacrifice. Um, So they put it under the wings of the cherubim, and the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. Not today, today, then today. Got it? There were That always bothered me when I was a kid. I'm just saying. like, <laughs> There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said... The Lord has said that he will dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever, or at least for a little while until it gets destroyed, um, which is not in the text. That was Eric's commentary. Um, what do we do with that? Well, look, when God shows up, when he is manifest, you can't even be in the building. Right? Like, so God fills the temple up, and it, like, blasts the doors off, and they're clouds, and, and it is, it is a lot. It looks like the place is probably burning down or whatever, and they can't even go in to offer him sacrifices, because you can't even go into God's presence to offer sacrifice. Right? Like, it is so much when God fills the temple that he is unapproachable. Um, and that's how the Jews understood it. Right. We talked about this a little bit the first week. There are ways they believed God would be present with them. But for the most part, if God was like actually manifest, you back right up. Right. Like God shows up. You, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me let me go. I got to go to the other room here. Um, we see that best in Isaiah. When Isaiah, like the, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. I love this song. Uh, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. After him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings to cover their faces. Why? Because they couldn't see him. So these are the angels that attend to God and worship him constantly. And even they aren't looking at him. Because God's glory is so much. Um, with, their two, uh, with two, they covered their feet. Uh, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Sound familiar? And Isaiah realizes, Uh oh, woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Um, So Isaiah sees God and his first response is I'm a sinner. Oh no, I'm in trouble. Right. Like this is the end of Isaiah and a coal is touched to his lips. I just want to explain this very briefly. Okay, the coal that's touched to his lips would have been from the fire where the offering was brought. Right. And so this is a part of the offering. And so this would have been a part of like them taking the offering, the, the guilt offering or what have you, and lifting it up and making him holy by touching him with the offering. Right? There's a little bit of prefiguring of Jesus here, right? His, the words he says, the way he talks, who he is, is, is flawed and sinful, and he's made clean because God's holiness in the coal, in the fire, and in the sacrifice, ultimately, the sacrifice of Jesus burns away the brokenness, burns away the sin, and makes him holy. Um, and that's awesome. But again, is this a God who's approachable? I mean, I don't see Isaiah climbing into his lap, do you? Not, not really. It <laughs> would have been impressive. I, I saw um, a photo once when I lived in D.C. Uh, of the Lincoln Memorial where a guy, like, ran past the ropes and climbed up and sat in Lincoln's lap and was promptly, like, tased and arrested, I think. So, um, <laughs> But he wanted to sit in Lincoln's lap, and it was this huge deal. I got to sit in Lincoln's lap. Like, this is bigger and more serious because it's God. and It's terrifying. Um, our sin is the greatest barrier that is the thing that keeps us far from God. It is the the wall between us and the father and so to understand this, God is huge and powerful and and consuming and like like he is all, and we cannot approach him. He is unapproachable, completely unapproachable, and at the core of it it 's not I mean, like, this is the biggest thing is our sin. It's not just our sin because the angels can't see him. Not in his fullness, not in his trueness, right? Like, the angels cover their faces. Like, like not only is God, like, our sin in the way, but also the fact that we are created and we're limited and we're a little like the housefly hanging out on my wall, right? Can't look, or I can look, but I can't see all of you. I can't understand you. And so it is with us. And the, the ancients understood this. This was not a new idea. It wasn't a difficult idea. All right, Malachi. Oh, I love this text. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the Levites and refine the gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. As in the days gone by, as in former years, So Malachi offers this prophecy of the coming Messiah. And what does he say? He says, the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And everybody read that and they assumed, yeah, maybe in a cloud, right? Cloud sounds good. Or representative, right? These are two ways that we expect it to happen. What we don't expect is what they got. Because God is huge. God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. You can't see him face-to-face. And yet, when the time came for his purification, this is eight days, this is Luke 2, on the eighth day, basically, for his purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So this guy is hanging out in the temple all day, every day, because the Spirit told him, the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to the temple, and you're going to see it. Man, I would be there all the time, right? Like, I would pitch a little tent in the corner, and I would, I would just live there, right? Because, you, like, the promised one's coming. God is coming. Like, his representative, he's going to fill the temple. This cloud's going to be there or whatever. Something is going to happen, and he's going to fix things. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child to do for him what the custom of the law required, thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your soul too. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have presented in the sight of nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, the child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your heart too. By the way, that is just went that extra little paragraph because I wanted to make the point, Mary did know. That's it. <laughs> just for you, Larry. <laughs> So, Simeon is in the temple, right? And he has read this thing, written hundreds of years before he was born, by Malachi, right? Like, the Lord who you seek will suddenly come into your temple. And, like, honestly, I, I know this line uh, so well because it's in Handel's Messiah, and I've heard it sung, like, 10,000 times. It's one of my favorite pieces of music. I love that line. I love that moment in the music. It is just just always makes my heart beat fast. And he is there, and suddenly the Lord who you seek came into the temple, Walked in proudly, or not, right? Carried in in diapers, so he could be circumcised. Wow! The God who laid the foundations of creation, right? The God who, the God who hung the stars in the skies. The as Kierkegaard, uh, the philosopher Kierkegaard put it, the infinite God poured in to the finite man. Imagine pouring the entire ocean into a shot glass. Fully God, fully man, fully present. And, and people have argued about this forever. And like every major cultic group that has ever arisen attacks this doctrine. Oh, Jesus wasn't always... He wasn't fully man. He wasn't fully God. He was created. He was this. He was that. And they always try to tear it down. But the truth of the matter is God himself, the son of God, the son of the father, like God himself was present. He was there. He was carried into the temple. Um, To give you a little bit of an idea as we fast forward a little bit in Jerusalem, this is John 8. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, this is him talking to the Pharisees, my glory I got a little excited. I have a tiny little space here to preach him. Uh, <laughs> um, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I do not, I would be a liar like you. Man, Jesus is really, really like tough to talk to, right? I would be a liar like you. Um, but... I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they replied, you are not 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? And Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham wa- was born, I am. At this they pick up stones To stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. What's he saying? So, flashback this moment. Burning bush, right? And Moses says, who am I supposed to say sent me? And God replies, tell him that I am who I am. This is the name of God. Jesus refers to himself as Yahweh. Like, I am who I am. And they go to kill him because, like, no man can be God. No man can can pretend to be God. Like, that man is a blasphemer or insane or or whatever. And much less if you flash forward a little bit, he's going to be arrested and crucified. And, and pierced in his side and, like, spit and mocked. And, and, you know, the crown of thorns, the whole nine yards. He's going to be humiliated and hung naked in front of hundreds of people. And then, like, laid in a tomb. Like, that guy cannot claim to be God. And yet... And yet, this is the message that they took out. The cool thing about the gospel um, is first off, the God who came to save us, like honestly, I just, he arrived at the temple as an infant and then walked in as a man and stood amongst us and carried our weight. Like, there is no give, no take, no nothing. This is the plain truth of what the scripture says. This is the plain truth of the gospel. Jesus was God, and he was man, he was both, and we are saved because of him. Um, So what do we do with this? Well, first off, the incarnation, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is completely contrary to what the Jews expected. Everybody with me? Now if you jump over to the rest of the world, everybody else, the Greeks, they believed that everything flesh and substantive was broken and fallen, and the only perfect things were things in the other world like the forms and or like the ideal versions. And so the idea that God would show up as a man to them? Nuts, right? And in fact, in fact like a lot of the early heresies were ways of trying to take this gospel message which everybody would have looked at and said, that's insane. And convert it to like Greek philosophy or Roman mystery religion or like a more Jewish version of it or whatever. And even today, people argue, oh, well, Jesus' death for you doesn't actually save you from your sins. It's an example of how to suffer. Nonsense. Jesus died for me, for you. He suffered in my place. He was a man who got angry, who had to use the bathroom, who was tempted to sin, who had, had all the stuff that comes along with being a man. I'm not going to be too much. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop with that. Um, everything. All of that stuff um, for us. Nobody liked the idea. Nobody accepted it. Um, except those that God called to himself. Except those who were saved, who accepted the truth of it and were made new. They changed the world. So God made man, or God's made man, it should be, that's a really terrible sentence. I don't know, I should have proof-checked it. So God being made into a man, God being manifest, being incarnate as a man is extraordinary in the extreme. Like we have to understand this um, this truth because because it sets everything into perspective. And then beyond that, it shapes everything we believe. Um, it should impact every truth, every idea, every concept, every underlying value we have. And it's hard. You know why it's hard? Because when you look at it and you say, God was one of us and he died for my sins, even though I'm a terrible person. And even though like, I want to soften it and say this and say that, like, even though the world doubts, even though like people make fun of it, even though, even though, even though, like these are the truths, but we hear this and then. I have to change carpets out this afternoon in our little home study. I got to write a newspaper article, and I got to play a board game with the kids, and we're like a week and a half away from Christmas, and our Christmas tree is still in the shed, right? And I still got to figure out like a couple of Christmas gifts, and I got to figure out what we're doing for our trip to Reno, and I got to figure out a funeral, and I got to figure out, you know how much stuff I got to worry about that I don't have time to sit and think? God became a man for me. The extraordinary sometimes gets lost in the ordinary, especially now, because there's so much to do to celebrate Christmas. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Who was that? (laughs) You and me are fighting after church, boy. (laughs) Hey, Ross, can you fight a kid for me? (laughs) This is 1 Corinthians. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demanded a sign, and the Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, this is all nuts to everybody but us. And the moment you discover it's true, it's everything. Right? Right? absolutely everything so what do we do with this first off it should impact everything it should impact the truth of who we are how we follow christ like like how we understand the gospel um it should impact how we share it with people like how we love the people around us how we understand god's love for us um because it's not just that a guy died in my place it is that god himself endured humanity And not just for that time. There's this weird idea that, like, was circulated for a while, that he was a man for a little bit. Right before he died on the cross, God left, and, like, the body of Jesus died. And then, you know, he came back and brought him back to life. Nope. He went through death. And he is still incarnate. Heaven will be Christ incarnate, like, with a body. And we will talk to him, and you'll be able to stick your finger in the hole in his hands. Like, that's, that's the, the, I mean, I, that's the doctrine of it, right? Like, this was an eternal switch. This is him stepping into the body and staying for us, for the people that drive you nuts, right? For your annoying kids, for the people that are coming over for Christmas that you wish would stay home. All right, just hoping my parents are, or my dad and my sister are listening so they'll know that Jesus, um, since I'm going over there. Um, we need to maintain that sense of wonder and awe. Not just at the miracle of it, but also like at the fact that like, how much did Christ humiliate himself for us? How much did he bring himself low? I mean, can you imagine being God and having your diaper changed? Can you imagine being God I mean, born, okay? I mean, like, a whole other thing. I know people say it's beautiful. It is not. Um, in a barn. And to have your, your birth witnessed by, you know, dirty guys and, but I'm not going to say any more about them, dirty guys and pagans. And, and, you know, then to have to go through puberty. I mean, can you imagine? But for you. So that God can reveal to you the real tone of who he is. The deep resonance of the truth of God's identity. It's got to shape us. In the early church, they were passionate about it because they had to be. Now it's easy not to be passionate about it because, because it's every day. The incarnation means that we can have a personal relationship with God, and specifically, Abba Father, which means Daddy God. That's what Jesus refers to, to God as repeatedly. So listen, you can cry out, Abba Father, Daddy God, um, We can approach him at any time for anything. This is the difference between Isaiah seeing God sitting on his throne in the temple and saying, Oh no, I'm in trouble. And Isaiah climbing into his lap and saying, I missed you. How amazing is that? This is God showing up and you could hug him. Again, don't climb the mountain, you'll be destroyed. And Jesus spit on the ground and made mud and healed a man. Touched his eyes so he could see. It's amazing. We're gonna close in prayer, but my challenge to you, my encouragement, my my over and over again thing here is don't treat this common. It is the most extraordinary an enormous reveal of who God is. It's to know God personally and not just as a cloud, not just as an idea, not just as a concept, not just as a book or a couple of songs we sing or or a box I check off every week, but like we can know God because he was made flesh, because he revealed himself to us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us and help us to remember just over and over again. Help us to remember that you were manifest, that you were incarnate in the Son, in the flesh. Help us to grow and change and to know you through it. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to close with a prayer since John isn't here. Um, John always loves prayers and sermons, or not with prayer, with poems. Sorry, it's a poem because John isn't here. This is a poem I, I came across and I really wanted to include it and I'm not missing it. Praise God for Christmas. Praise him for the incarnation, for the word made flesh. I will not sing of shepherds watching flocks on frosty nights or angel choirsters. I will not sing of a stable bear in Bethlehem or lowing oxen, wise men trailing a star with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Tonight, I will sing praise to the Father who stood on heaven's threshold and said, farewell to his son as he stepped across the stars to Bethlehem and Jerusalem and I will sing praise to the infinite eternal son who became the most finite a baby who would one day be executed for my crimes praise him in the heavens praise him in the stables praise him in my heart go out in the world and live like that's true like you're praising him in your heart amen have a good morning guys